Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'm Jason Kostock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. In this episode, we talk with Dave Moss over Skype about his military career and the impact that it's had on his life. I'm Dave Moss. Um, right now, I'm living in Alaska. Um, it's a balmy 10 below zero right now, which is, you know, warm for this time of year. Everybody's amazed I'm not wearing shorts when I go out still. Um, I joined the military back in uh, 1987. Combat engineers um, with the National Guard out of Rexburg, Idaho. Um, and I jumped around with the engineers in Idaho for 10 years up to North Idaho um, when they moved up there and then back to Southern Idaho um, did a year with the artillery. Yeah, I'm not an artillery fan, so I got out. <laughs> <laughs> I got out on good terms telling a first sergeant what I thought of him and what he could do with some things he wanted to do. Yeah, we were great friends after that for a while. Um, and then was out for about six, six, seven years. And then 9-11 happened, and I'm sitting at work watching an airplane fly into one of the towers in New York. And I went home that night and told my wife that I had to get back into the military. I couldn't let that happen. But if we were going to go in, the only way to do it was to go in and be become an officer. The problem with that is I had to go back to college finish a degree <laughs> and I found out that I was not a good student because the professors would say something and when I they were wrong Jason could tell you that I was quick to point out if you're wrong I'm going to raise my hand oh that's not correct at all professors don't like that that led to OCS and my love for artillery grew because that's what they told me if I was going to commission into the military, I had to go artillery. I was the worst artillery officer ever, ever in the history of artillery. That was me. So, what made you the worst artillery? What? Why? What made you the worst artillery officer ever? I absolutely suck at math. Absolutely suck at math. I figured out in college how to graduate with a bachelor's degree without taking a math class. And so artillery is all about math. Right. Yeah. And, and, and slide rules. I mean, it's not, it's not just any math. It's, you know, it's, it's figuring out a lot of different things. <laughs> yes. Well, it, like call for fire. I could, I was really good at call for fire. I could do call for fire and have the rounds land where I wanted them to land. 
the school instructors could not figure out how I could do it because I couldn't do slide rule math. We sit down at a table, do charts and darts, and I, not a clue. But as soon as we started doing call for fire, I could nail it. And I think that's just years of shooting and hunting and knowing what the projectile's got to do to mm-hmm. get what I want it to do. So then we came home from Iraq. Well, so real quick, when you, just if we could back up a little bit, when you came home yes. and said to your sweetheart, "I got to go back in to the military," what was her response? I, I don't think it was. We talked about it for a few days, and she was hesitant about it. Um, but and it was funny because remember when I got out and I told the first sergeant how to what to do and gave him specific directions. Apparently he logged that somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So the recruiters would not talk to me in Idaho. The recruiters would, oh, yeah, we'll do this. And then they would stop talking to me immediately. So I knew they were talking to him. And so the only recruiter that would, and this is a long way to answer your question, but the only recruiter was with the 19 Special Forces down in Utah. And they said, Oh, yeah, we can get anybody in. Watch this. But every time we sat down, I made Sarah sit down with me as we went through it. So by the time we got to where I was being sworn in, she was every step of the way, yes, no, yes, no, and had full input. Because I, I told her it was going to take a lot of time and effort on out away from the family that she had to be 100% on board or we weren't going to do it. And so she was right there the whole way with me. And the more we did it, the more she got into it. So like when we were in Iraq, she was one of the family readiness leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and it was fun to sit there and she got to ask high ranking officers as they're trying to figure out what I had done in the past and how to fix it. She would fire questions at them and they would just look at her and come to a complete stop knowing that they had to answer her questions and so it was fun to watch her deal with that and grow in that way. What stood out to you about serving in Iraq? You know, I don't think I could have gone with a better group of guys. The, the camaraderie, you know, so you're all in Utah, so you'll understand this a little bit. Your listeners, wherever they at. My dad, before we went to Iraq, gave me a blessing that no harm would come to me in Iraq which really upset me because we were going to war. My viewpoint was, here comes Rambo, watch out. Everything I did in Iraq was completely away from anything going on. You know, we, we did some call for fires. We did some terrain denial. And then about five, six months into it, I was moved over to battalion to be a, a a tactical officer in the talk, um, a battle captain. And that's where I started working with Jason a lot more. It was really strange to see the influence of the spirit in what we were doing. I mean, you look at the, the group we replaced and the troubles they were having. And within weeks of us taking over that mission, those troubles dissipated just walked away there were things that would happen jason can attest that there were some things i would say that people would look at me and think 
that's the stupid lieutenant talking again. But things just happened. And we went over there with the largest activation of LDS, worthy LDS members since World War II. I mean, we had several thousand of us went. And so it's, it's funny, you go into some, you know, you go on some military posts and, and you, you reach out to the, the, the members that can do, just help you bless sacrament or something like that. And you'll find one or two people and that's it. You'd go to Sunday meetings on Sunday meeting and there would be 50 to 100 of us in that meeting. The group that we replaced were amazed that, of, that we wanted to hold church services. You know, the group that replaced us was amazed. Yeah, that's what stood out to me the most was the influence of the Spirit in a war zone. You don't think of that. When you signed up, you knew you were going to be going. What What was your thinking? about? I mean, did you and your wife talk about that, all the different scenarios that might come out of that? get the will written, stuff like that? We did. Um, yeah, we, we, we talked about the possibilities, you know, and, and I was playing worst case scenario. This is what's going to happen, you know, and she was reluctant in some of those areas. And Reluctant yeah, and she didn't want to talk about it or re in reluctant in what way? So this is my viewpoint on it. So it's skewed somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had our daughter when when I deployed was eighteen months. Oh, I take that back. She was seven months. So that's close to eighteen. <laughs> Couple days. Again, again, the math creeps back in. <laughs> yes, shocking that it's that way. But her focus was how do I take care of our daughter if Dave's gone. And so we set everything up. If I don't come back, you're set up this way. You know, and what if you come back and you're injured? Well, we then we just function. So we, we tried to sit down and play out how is this going to work for the next step. What drove her nuts, I think, is every time we went somewhere where there's a military base, I was going into a store and buying, I'm going to need this and this. And I was constantly buying stuff I'm sure we never used. But in my head, I, I'm going to need this. I cannot go to Iraq without this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I remember when we would, we would walk to the chow hall and we would cross the little creek. And we joked very often that we were actually worth more to our spouses dead than we were alive because of all the life insurance we had while we were deployed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I made that comment to her one time, and I won't say what she said because it wasn't <laughs> nice. <laughs> I can imagine, <laughs> but I didn't say it very often to her. <laughs> how much? Um, how much communication did you have with your wife while you were deployed? Yeah, the first few months was just letters, um, but then yeah, after I got the to Bob Warrior, you know, I, I worked the 11, 11 p.m. to 11 a.m. shift. And so 
when there was nothing going on in a specific hour, I would just walk around the corner in the building and pick up the phone because everybody else is sleeping. And so we had good network. And so I could call her every few days if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you want more connection to home or did it, did that help or hurt to have that connection to home? I think that helped. You know, I remember we were, we would have discussions and she would lay out this big, Oh my gosh, this is what's going on. And, and I would just sit there and say, I can't help you, that you're there, you have to deal with it, and I'll support you however you want to do it, but I can't, I, I can't have any influence on it because I am so far away, I, I don't understand all the parameters. So that's where I learned that it was important to me just to give her support and, and just trust in what she was doing because it was, she's the one that had to make the call. I. I couldn't. How long had you guys been married when you decided to rejoin? Um, we got married in 99. So this is this is my kind of math now. We got married in 99, and 2001 was 9-11, right? Yeah. Yeah, so two years. Wow. Big math. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk about coming home and that transition back into to uh, civilian life and back into being in a family. What was what was going on there in your home? You there? Yep. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. You probably said something. Yeah, really that was important. weird. Yeah. No, my favorite. So my favorite story, my favorite favorite remembrance is. Jason and Shane and I were walking around one of the stores down in Seattle and we walked into some stereo shop. Bose. It was the Bose store. Bose. We walked into the Bose and we're sitting there and the salesman's doing his level best to sell us this, this sound system. And we just like, you know, we're not going to buy it. We just want to listen to it. And he lets us play with it. And I like to think it was Jason, but I'm pretty sure it was me that turned to the salesman and says, how loud can this go? Because we're all artillery and none of us can hear very well. <laughs> and he goes, well, you stay here in this glass room and I'll step out into the hallway and you just turn it up. And I think we had that thing almost full blast and we were just sitting there listening to an ACDC song yeah. or something like that. Yep. And, and just sitting there and just laughing because it was so bloody loud you could feel it people out in the causeway that were walking by and were stopping to see what was going on because the stereo yeah. was so yeah, loud. The building was going to come down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah that was just funny. I think this is a good time to thank the sponsors that make this podcast possible. If you support us, please support them. This episode of We Happy Few is sponsored by the law offices of Edward K. Brass. For more information, visit edbrasslaw.com. Be sure to check out some of the other podcasts from the Loudmouth Project. We at the Loudmouth Project want to thank Steve Bingham Hawk and the Salt Lake Marathon for supporting the Salt Lake chapter of Team Red, White, and Blue by allowing them to run the marathon course as a relay. Instead of handing off a baton from runner to runner, they pass a flag and they don't leave anyone behind. They collect runners as they navigate the course. And when a team of about 40 runners finally crosses the finish line, it's something special to see. 
we got the word that you guys were within range. And then all of a sudden, I see this massive blob of red. So Christy, our volunteer director, and Jen, our marketing director, we all run up there to come see them. And it was incredible. I mean, I was looking at everybody. Carter's crying. Jen's crying. <laughs> Everybody's crying. And uh, and then what was great is the entire event focused back on the finish line at that point. Steve said it was a mission of Team Red, White, and Blue, which is to enrich the lives of veterans through physical, social, and service opportunities that moved him to offer the team a one-of-a-kind opportunity. I knew we could trust you, and then I knew that whatever you would touch, you, you would have. So that was a big part of it. But also, I, mean, I love the mission of Team RWB. I wish everybody had a Team RWB, and they can <laughs> if they yeah. join. Because, uh, you know, we all need to be banding together in, in this world that is continually divisive and and rooted in, in digital, which is disconnecting us all. The Salt Lake Marathon is the largest team event Team Red, White, and Blue offers its members. It's a chance for them to run for those who've served and to honor those lost in service to this country. So to Steve, Salt Lake Marathon, and to all of our veterans, thank you. What was one of the tougher things about adjusting to regular life after being deployed? Peace and quiet. I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with... I, I didn't know how to deal with my daughter crying in the middle of the night and me not being able to do anything. That drove me... That's when I realized I was going to have issues. Is She did a temper tantrum and I went ballistic. And I finally just had to walk away and turn to Sarah, you have to deal with it, I can't. And I just had to walk away. You know, and it was, that's when I think we discovered she was scared of the dark. She was in a panic because it was dark in her room. So we came home and she was almost two. And we discovered she was scared in the dark because what I learned is when Sarah was having a bad night, she would go in and sleep in the same room as Elizabeth just to have that company. So Elizabeth didn't have to deal with being scared of the dark because mom was right there. So then we discovered she's scared of the dark. But I that's that was the first eye-opener that her going into a screaming panic set off everything bad about me there was. Yeah. And so what did you how did you handle it? Did you go get help? Did you No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a, I do not trust mental health counselors as far as I can shake a stick at them. I don't trust them. I don't trust someone that can talk to me and influence me in such a way that I'm willing to do something that I'm not comfortable doing. I don't trust that level of control of someone. So it's taking, it's taken a long, there's still days we deal with it. But we've just learned that when I'm to the point that I have to walk away, I just walk away. I just have to say, I, I can't deal with this. I'm I'm walking away. Yeah. I, I remember, too, when Letitia realized that I wasn't doing very good, she actually reached out to Shane, 
and then uh, a friend of ours, and he reached out to Dave, and we started, even though those guys lived uh, farther away, um, we would meet somewhere in the middle, like Idaho Falls. I was in Pocatello. They were in up towards Rexburg. We would meet in Idaho Falls and go out to dinner. And I just remember we would sit on one side of the table, the three of us, and share some story about sometimes some rocket came in and bounced off the roof of the talk and just laugh. <laughs> and our wives are like white as they're listening to these goofy stories that, that, that sure, I'm sure were scary. But for me, there, it was extremely cathartic to have somebody to talk to that was right there at the same time. So. Yeah, that's that's one thing I've learned in, in other things I deal with. If I can have someone that I can talk to online that knows what experience, how it is that I'm working with, dealing with, that I can deal with it. I can, I can handle whatever I'm facing because somebody else can relate to what I'm talking about. And that's been, you know... It, in, in dealing with PTSD and, and other issues, that's been largely, hugely cathartic for me, if did, that makes sense. Yeah. Did your, do you feel like your military service, um, like, changed the person you would have become? Like, did it impact who you became as a man? I, I don't know how it couldn't. I don't know, but I don't know how it couldn't because I was. Are you back? Yep. I'm sorry. I don't know what keeps happening, but. Jason's playing video games. That's what it was. I was playing a video game on the network. And... No, we're so having networking. That easily issues. could be Alaska connectivity. <laughs> so you're going outside? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Isn't that how that works? The cell phone's better if you're outside? Woo! That looks cold. Are you in your car? I am. That's actually a good, there's supposed to be a good sound in a car. That's why everybody makes their videos in the That's car. That's true, yeah, yeah. How it, yeah. you said it, possi- it couldn't possibly have not influenced the guy, the man you became? Like, Well, yeah, I mean, I joined when I was 17, and it affected every aspect of my life after that. I mean, even, so I was on my mission in 1989 to 91, so right in the middle of that, we go to Desert Storm. And the unit that I was with, it came down to two National Guard units. One National Guard unit of engineers was going to get called up to go to Desert Storm, one out of Mississippi and one, or one out of Idaho. So I got notified if they chose the one out of Idaho, I was going. And I was absolutely stoked. Successfully off my mission halfway through, I'm going to war. This is going to be great. It's not the missionary mentality you're supposed to have, apparently. <laughs> so I'm fairly confident that's why they didn't get called up to go to Afghanistan or to Iraq at that point. So, but yeah, it's you know I've been associated with my the military for most of my life now. So yeah, I don't know how it couldn't affect how I made decisions or anything like that. Okay, now you can tell us why in the heck you're in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. So what what took you to Alaska? So we came home from Iraq. I still had to go back and finish a college class. <laughs> so I, I went up and did that. While we were doing that, we were looking for active guard jobs for a career. And in 2004, um, GMD, or ground-based missile defense, was growing. And... 2004, they'd stood the first battalion up, up here in Alaska, and I, in 2007, I interviewed for a position 
and they hired me and I came up here. And so like today, you know, it's, what's the damn, it's seven below. (laughs) I've got the coat coat next to me in case I get cold. Yeah. But, you know, some of the weather I've seen, 30, 40 below was, that's expected. You know, I'm, I'm largely wearing shorts until about zero anymore. Yeah, it's, yeah, Alaska messes with your head. So. I was going to say, you do get used to it, right? It does feel different. You, you do. And so, yeah, I remember, I remember one year we got pictures of the gas station put the temperature out at 74 below zero. If you're wondering, 74 below zero is very cold. <laughs> You walk from your house or from your car into the building you're working, and they—I don't know why—but at the time they had a mirror right there inside the door, and I was honestly surprised that the skin was still on my face. It was that bloody cold. Oh my gosh! Oh, it just hurt. And then the next day, it was 30 degrees above zero. So we had a temperature swing in a 24-hour period of 100 degrees, and we were still below freezing. That's when I turned to Sarah and said, we may be in the wrong place. <laughs> so was it always your intention to, to, to retire from the military? Yeah, that was the intention. Um, but I thought it would be, the goal would be, was going to be at 55. That was my target date. If I get to 55, I'll retire. Life will not be nothing but, but milk and honey. Right. What happened? Oh, so I'm sitting there at work one day and we're in one of these endless battalion staff meetings and my head starts, I've been dealing with a headache for a few days and I'm sitting there and in the bottom, like a moon shape in my left eye, all of a sudden I just lost color vision. And I, I went like that for like three days until I finally got tired of it, went to the doctor and the doctor's like, why are you coming to me now after three days? And I'm like, well, honestly, it's pretty cool to have black and white vision. Did so, he laugh? Did yeah. he? Did he laugh? <laughs> I bet your he didn't think it was funny, but I couldn't stop laughing, so I wasn't <laughs> a lot of help to him. So I'm guessing your military service changed your sense of humor, or did, were you always that dark? <laughs> um, I don't know that I was always that dark, but yeah, yeah. I, I, the the things you laugh at from the military is most people look at you like. Dude, you're messed up. <laughs> yes, that is, that's very true. <laughs> but so, and that turned out, and it, and it ended up being diagnosed as MS. Well, and it was funny because they diagnosed me, and, and I'm down at Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson, which is down in Anchorage. And the neurologist there is a Air Force Fulbert colonel that's getting ready to retire. And he goes, well, he goes, this is going to kick you out of the military. What do you want me to do? And I talked to him into not putting it into my into my paperwork yet. So let's see how long before the Army figures out that I have this and that it's going to retire me. And so I went for about a year and a half. And finally, a PA up here was like, why are you taking this medicine? So I, I explained I have MS. And, and she called me back two days later. I'm going, you have to be medically retired. We can't let you stay in. And I argued my piece and lost. So in a nutshell, they retired me a few years later. 
but it, it was funny. So I had another school to go to. Uh, my last portion of Captain's Career Course, and I'm sitting there, and they're introducing me, and they're, they make some comment, and I just pointed out to them, I'm going to re be retired in six months. I don't even care what I do at the school. So the, the instructor's like, yeah, but we're going to be professional till the end. Right, Dave? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> would you want any of your kids to, to serve in the military? How would you feel about that? Um, if they want to. I, I don't think there's an easy career path to life out there. I, I, I don't think there is. I, I think the military gives you certain aspects that the rest of the world doesn't get. You get good health care. You get things to help you along and the, and the military even today is changing to where they're helping the families more than the soldiers now yeah i think it's a when people talk bad about being in the military service you know i i think if they've been there to embrace the suck as it were they can talk bad about it all they want because they've taken that but if, if people haven't if, if they're talking bad about it because they don't like it the idea of it they have no clue what they're missing. I, I think it's, I, I think it's a service that everybody should have to do in some way, um, whether that's having your spouse in the military or you, your, they themselves in the military. Um, my my son, who's married now, lives in Maine. He finally had to ask me to stop bringing it up as a topic because every time he was. He was in college at the time and getting ready to graduate, and every time it came up was what he was trying to do for career, I would throw out there the military. Yeah. You say it, that there's benefit. Like, what are some of the things that you really value that you feel like were uniquely gifted to you by your military service? The, my comfort in speaking my mind. I sat in a meeting today and or yesterday and listened to somebody talk that should know better than, and I had to interrupt the meeting. So here's a civilian sitting there listening to a Fulberg colonel ask a question because he doesn't know the answer. Nobody else around him knows the answer. And so I just, all right, you're thinking wrong. This is, this is, this is what this piece means. This is what this piece means. This is what this means. And they tie together this way. And then if it goes on for so long, then we have to do this, this, and this, and just lay it out. That's, yeah, I think the military has just given me confidence to speak my mind. And I am not always right. I'm, as, I'm wrong with what I think more often than not sometimes. But it doesn't stop me from speaking up. And if someone knows more than I do and can speak and can correct me, I'm all for that. Correct me. I don't care. Because the worst I can do would be is wrong. But if we don't have options on the table, because my civilian career now, I still work with the military. If I'm wrong, but nobody else is putting anything out there, then we're putting people's lives at risk. So speak up and, and talk. And if I'm wrong, correct me. I got no problem. Yeah, that, the military is just confidence in speaking up and, and putting forth ideas and talking through, and through ramifications of whatever's going to go on. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. 
be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.